You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 594 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland. It is Monday evening, and this is kind of an emergency podcast in some ways. I was uh, supposed to be recording, at least in my planning, on Tuesday to wrap up the uh, NBA awards and all kinds of stuff from the Cambridge Press Conference, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But then the Hawks sort of forced my hand a little bit. You might notice that I am not in my normal studio. Hopefully the sound quality is okay. But here we are to talk about the trade that transpired on Monday between the Hawks and the Portland Trailblazers with Kent Bazemore heading to Portland in exchange for Evan Turner. No picks, no compensation otherwise in this trade. A uh, sort of an old school challenge trade, a one for one, you know, basketball driven trade. It was an interesting thing that kind of made the rounds. I will say when the when the trade hit uh, the wires from Adrian Wojnarowski at ESPN, I had a, a lot of people around the league reaching out to me asking kind of why the Hawks would do this unless there was something else to the trade. And I kind of thought there would be as well, honestly. I thought the Hawks would probably get a secondary asset from Portland because you know my overarching thoughts here is that Kent Bazemore is a better basketball player and uh, by proxy a better value on his contract than Evan Turner. But that was not the case here, and uh, sort of it's, it's an old school trade in that way that it was uh, sort of a challenge. So we'll, we'll talk about that in uh, every different angle here as we start the podcast off. Uh, first and foremost, there was some reporting after the trade from Chris Kirchner of the Athletic and Chris Livermore of the AJC, both cited sources that saying that the, the Hawks' plan for Evan Turner is to be the backup point guard for the Hawks. That's not a huge surprise given what the Hawks are um, situated with their backup point guard situation. I talked about that a lot on yesterday's podcast with Tyler Jones. If you missed any of that, please go back and listen to it. Most of that stuff is still relevant, so check that out, as well as the uh, our draft takes, etc. But um, backup point guard was a need for this Hawks team, and if you view Evan Turner, as the Hawks seemingly do, as an option at that spot, this makes a lot more sense because uh, that was a need and they, they can they can sort of address that without having to uh, sort of invest more capital in terms of salary cap space. And actually, Turner makes a little bit less than Baysmore, which we'll, which we'll come back to and talk about a little bit later. Uh, that's uh, I, I would say that, you know, Playmaking and point guard responsibilities are kind of the best case scenario for Turner offensively because he really can't shoot. We'll talk about that, that, that a little bit more later as well when we get at sort of his overall scouting report. But also a bit curious with the fit um, on a full-time basis as a backup point guard. You know, you know, more often we talk about guys like DeAndre Bember who can sort of function as secondary ball handlers and maybe be in that role. But as a full-time role deployment of him being the backup point guard, it's going to be interesting to see what the Hawks do with that uh, moving forward. Uh, the other sort of angles here, uh, one of which is that this could have been, a, a, at least in some ways, a favor to Kent Bazemore. He goes from a situation where it was a, definitely very crowded on the wing in Atlanta. You know, Kent's in the, in the last year, or at least heading into the last year of a four-year, $70 million contract that he signed. And from the moment he signed it, it was probably an overpay. We, we, and we all kind of knew that, but it was the summer of 2016. And actually, uh, kind of amusingly, Evan Turner signed a very similar deal in the same summer. So, uh, you know, both guys, you know, four-year, big money, big money contracts now coming to roost. And they're being swapped for one, one another, which is pretty interesting in certain ways. But this gives Bazemore a chance to go to a situation in Portland where he's on a contending team, maybe not a title contender, but certainly an upper echelon team that made the Western Conference Finals this year. And he uh, should be playing right away there, honestly. You know, Turner was someone who was a secondary option for Portland, but he definitely he was, he was, he was playing a real role for the Blazers. And uh, Bazemore, a better shooter, probably a little bit better fit in some ways in Portland, I think could be uh, definitely a prominent member of the Blazers. So that, that's a probably a good hat tip in his direction. 
Bays had been the longest tenured member of the Hawks organization in terms of the roster. Now that 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 actually belongs to DeAndre Bembry, which is pretty crazy because he was only only drafted three years ago. But it's been a lot of turnover in Atlanta. Baysmore was the last vestige of the previous uh, regime and, and sort of the great teams that were the late, I guess the early Mike Budnoser teams and the late Al Horford, Paul Millsap teams. He is now off the roster and there's been a complete reset. But I would say the counterpoint to sort of the, the favor element here is that Baysmore really likes Atlanta. He's been very, very effusive in his praise of the city in uh, recent years. He's been, he was, you know, was the unquestioned leader of the team two years ago. You know, last year took a little bit of a backseat to Vince Carter in that role, but still a locker room presence, a vocal leader, and someone who everybody seems to like. So, uh, you know, there is an element of that, I, I guess, permeating through what I thought initially and then uh, after the reporting from Bibblemore and Kirchner about this at the Hawks, at least part of this deal was to get Kent Bazemore to a better situation and sort of uh, clear up the logjam they had a little bit on the wing, which, which does make some sense in the aggregate. Um, the other one there would be, you know, sort of the angle here in terms of clearing the space for young guys. I don't really buy that in, in full, but one of the things that was cited was that, that the Hawks wanted clear, clear space on the wing for the young players like Kevin Herter, like DeAndre Bembry, um, you know, I, I guess in a secondary way, DeAndre Hunter as well, in, in a more prominent role. Cam Reddish, um, those, those guys are obviously going to be in the mix for a long time here. Baysmore probably was, wasn't going to be in the mix for a long time in Atlanta. I think in some ways I get it because if they really plan on Turner being the backup point guard, that takes away a wing and makes it a point guard. Obviously, Turner is not a traditional point guard in any way, at least defensively. He's not, he's not going to be that kind of player. But if they were to uh, sort of assign him that, that role, and replace him with, uh, you know, and replace baseball with nothing on the wing, and that, that gives more minutes to guys that are already on the roster between Herder, Hunter, Reddish, Crab, Bembry, um, and then you have, of course, Solomon Hill and Adam Turner. So, you know, it doesn't really necessarily be a straight thing. You know, if they were to not have Turner be a straight, straight back at point guard, if that does not come to fruition and does not stick as his long term role, then suddenly. Turner's like a hybrid small forward power forward, and that becomes kind of a problem. But if he does stick as a, as a backup point guard, then you have a little bit more space for the young guys to stretch out on the wing and not have to worry about playing a guy in Baysmore who you know is better than a lot of the other options. I guess this sort of takes that option off the table for for Lloyd Pierce because you know you know right now today Baysmore is probably you know, the second or third best wing on this roster uh, going in, going into this, going into the season, if healthy, you know, Bay struggled, struggled last year down the end of the stretch um, after, after he got injured, but before the injury was playing really well. And I think, you know, if he, if he is healthy, would have projected it as a clear member of the, ro- of the rotation in Atlanta. If you take him out of that, out of the mix, that allows for more flexibility for guys like Reddish who are young players that they definitely want to invest in, in the future. Um, Salary-wise, there's also an element of that involved here. The Hawks saved a little bit of money on the salary cap, about $600,000 or so. That doesn't have a ton of impact necessarily, but it could have a little bit of impact if the Hawks were to use their cap space. You know, For instance, Dwayne Debman's been a popular notion in recent days as a potential re-sign candidate. And if they were to go above and beyond his early bird rights, they would need to have as much cash space as possible. And that extra, you know, half million dollars or more could could prove somewhat useful. I think also as a secondary thing here, this could um, open up some uh, more roster space and I guess the ability to actually stay on the roster for Jalen Adams. We talked about him a lot on yesterday's podcast as well. But now as a third as a third point guard option, Adams on a cheap non-guaranteed contract might make some sense to stick around if you are the Hawks. And the Hawks still have, a, have one open roster spot. So if they want to invest now in either Vince Carter in sort of a reunion scenario or someone like Deadman or another big man, somebody like that, they have one more roster spot. They also can get creative if they want to and maybe buy out someone like Miles Plumley or Solomon Hill. But for now, they still have one more roster spot if they want to play with for someone like Carter or Deadman. And if they don't want to do that, they already have 14 now. But 
It's probably good for Jalen Adams, in my opinion. That, that, that's not source. That's kind of me reading, reading between the lines a little bit on this. But you're better off with as Adams as a cheap third point guard than you are as a backup point guard. And that seems to be addressed with this trade today. Um, and also, by the way, just this, the lack of money that you have to spend now in backup point guard also sort of frees up the capital to you know invest in someone bigger like Deadman. You know, Carter Carter would obviously be a pretty cheap option, but if they want to spend now on someone who makes you know nine or ten million dollars uh, in in year one, they, they can now do that without any penalty and no worry about backup point guard because they have now addressed that situation. Um, let's talk about Turner a little bit in the uh, vacuum of just kind of what kind of player he is. I know a lot of people. Know the idea of Evan Turner because he was the number two number two overall pick in the draft. He's been around for a long time, but let's just dive a little bit into what you what you can, what you can expect. We'll talk more about him as the summer progresses. But offensively, it's kind of a mess, frankly. Um, he's legitimately a good passer. If you want if you want to find the, the number one uh, attribute of, of Turner offensively. It's his playmaking. Most of that's his passing. He really he really sees the floor well. He distributes well. And has really good size to go ahead and do that. So he sees the floor and, be, and, can, and can sort of deliver passes in a way that a lot of point guards can't because he's not necessarily a pure point guard, but he certainly can play that role. And he's a pretty decent rebounder for his size as well. So there's a couple of things that you want to definitely point out. But that's kind of where the positives stop offensively. This is, that's the end of the court where he's kind of a, it's kind of a um, struggle in some ways for Evan Turner offensively. You know, the last couple of seasons, in fact, the last five seasons in a row, his team has been better on offense with him off the floor than with him on the floor. That's always dependent on context, but it's definitely been a theme for Turner. One of the catch-all metrics, he was actually 303rd overall in ESPN's offensive RPM. That does not mean everything by any means, but you know, if you, if you look at his efficiency um, on the ball, as a shooter, it's really questionable and just fit-wise. It does work better at point guard with the ball in his hands. That's one of the things that did make sense about him in Portland in some ways is that you know playing alongside someone like Dame Lillard or CJ McCollum doesn't really make a lot of sense for him. Um, Evan Turner is someone, you know, for instance, when Trey Young's off the floor and they need to have some creation, that does make some sense, but you, you have to surround him with shooting because if you if you pair Evan Turner, who is a pretty much a non-shooter as a perimeter player, with another non-shooter or two, that gets into a lot of uh, log jam stuff. So he, he needs to have the ball in his hands to be at his best. There is some trade-off there because he's not that good with the ball in his hands. He's definitely better with the ball in his hands than out of his hands, but there's some tricky fit stuff that the Hawks will have to figure out and how to surround him with, um, I guess, you know, floor spacers and also secondary playmakers. With that said, his shooting is the, is the glaring weakness here, obviously. I think everyone knows that by the time they were probably listening to this podcast. But Evan Turner shot 21.2% from three last year. That's not a misprint. 21, 21% from three. That's about as bad as it gets. Obviously, he's not quite that bad, probably. But still, in the last five seasons, five full NBA seasons, he's shooting 27.2% from three. And that is uh, untenable, frankly, in the modern NBA. You, you just cannot have a guy out there that shoots that poorly um, unless you're an absolute lockdown defender. And he's a good defender. We'll get to that in a second. But it's a, it's a problem in some ways for Turner. Um, Career-wise, it's a little bit better than that. He shot the ball better early in his career. So if you, if you want to be optimistic, maybe you can refine some of that stuff. In Atlanta, they have a pretty good track record with some non-shooters and fixing those guys here in Atlanta. So if you want to buy that a little bit more, I understand it. But a five-year sample of 27% from three is kind of hard to ignore in some ways. And even beyond that, just overall efficiency-wise, a career 49% true shooting. That is well below average for someone on, on the wing like Turner at his side. Should be shooting somewhere in the mid-50s as an average, and he's uh, lo- he's actually below 50%. That's pretty brutal. In the playoffs last season, he shot 44 point, 44%. Actually, no, this is, this is a career number. In the playoffs, career 44% from uh, true shooting. That is really, really bad. Uh, this year is actually about 40%. So you know, efficiency-wise, he's not going to be an efficient shot maker. That's just not, that's just not what he's going to be able to do. And again, if you, if you pair him with Kevin Herter and DeAndre Hunter, guys who can shoot the basketball, 
you'll have some interesting stuff there, maybe even Alan Crabb, because Alan Crabb is someone who's basically only a shooter, but you know he does bring that element to the table. If you want to pair him in the backcourt with Turner, you can kind of cover up, cover up for him a little bit defensively. That might make some sense. But it kind of gets tricky in some ways when you're playing him with someone like Gunnar Bembry, for instance, because Bembry is not a great shooter. He's a better shooter than Turner, but not a great shooter by any means. And those guys on the floor together might, might be tricky in some ways. So we'll get into that later. But the, going, the glaring weakness for Turner is obviously his shooting and just his overall offensive game. He is certainly a below-average offensive player. That's not really up for debate, frankly. All, you know, all the stats that are out there that you could, that you could possibly see with Turner – I understand his playmaking is certainly valuable, and again, I think this is his best role is on the ball as a backup point guard option. Um, you know, not a traditional point guard, but still someone who has the ball in his hands. That, that's what he's best at offensively. Not great necessarily still, but uh, definitely, I guess the Hawks are putting him in the best position possible to sort of outline his skill set, so that's something to keep in mind here. Uh, defensively, it is better. Uh, he is legitimately above average as a defensive player. He's switchy, he's versatile, he's strong. Positionally, he's more of a 3-4 defender. He's, a, he's definitely a big physical guy who can defend power forward. That's a, that's a very useful skill set, particularly when you're playing a backup um, lineup, a second unit that's uh, going to be predicated on being kind of big with him at the point guard spot and uh, basically having no defensive weaknesses. You know, the only guy on the roster right now that projects to be in the rotation that's a legitimate, you know, big-time defensive weakness is Trey Young. But if he's off the floor, which he will be, I would imagine, I can't imagine those guys playing a ton together just because of the fact that you want Turner to have the ball in his hands when he's playing, and with Young on the floor, he has to have the ball in his hands. So if you were to just factor in the Evan Turner minutes, he's playing alongside guys like Herter and Reddish and Alan Crabb and DeAndre Hunter and John Collins, and that, that actually can work as a switchy, interesting defensive lineup. So the theory of it does make some sense as a big physical you know, perimeter player who can play strong defense, and if you're looking for a positive outside of his playmaking on offense, it's definitely his defense. Uh, Turner is not like an absolutely elite defender by any means but someone who is a, legit, a legitimate positive on the end of the floor. So if you want to be charitable in your evaluation of this, defense is the is my favorite thing about Turner in addition to his passing, which is also very good. Um, so, you know, bank on that. And there's some safety in that, especially on second units where, when you're talking about the uh, replacement level being a little bit lower on the offensive end of the floor. So in an overall sense here, you know, it's, it's one of those things where my initial reaction was one of, you know, critical – Nature, just because of the fact that I think, as I said before, I think Bazemore is a better player, and he's you know they're making very similar salaries. Bazemore, I think, is a pretty a substantially better player. I, I understand the arguments though in terms of fit because of the fact that Bazemore, if you believe that Bazemore was going to take away minutes from from the young guys, I totally get that rationale because the young guys are all that matters. And you know, as a overall thought process here. It's not the end of the world. Even if you think that Bazemore is better, as I as I clearly do, as you're listening to this podcast, um, you know it's a, they're both on one year deals. This is not going to be a huge impact thing moving forward. It clears the decks a little bit on the wing if you wanted to see that argument, and also fills a need if the Hawks are as they apparently seem to be with the people that are, that are definitely sourced and plugged in, and Chris Kirshner and Chris Livermore. They seem to have a plan, which is good. Uh, having a plan at, to have Turner as a backup point guard and seeing that through the lens of this makes it a lot easier to accept. Even as a value proposition, it's not great necessarily because I think Bazemore is better and they're similarly paid. But you know, both both guys come off the books. It doesn't really have a huge impact on the future. And for for a one season sample size, we'll see what Turner can bring. If it doesn't work, if it's just an absolute disaster, the downside is not too low here because both guys are going to be expiring anyway, and you just kind of let Turner Turner float away. Probably if he's if he's if he's really struggling, which he has in the past at, at certain times, you saw Jalen Adams on the roster. You have Kevin Herter. You have guys who can who can sort of engineer that role. I do think that a guy like Bembry is interesting to watch because that was one of the roles that you would potentially project for Bembry on this team was the. Uh, secondary playmaking backup point guard kind of ish option that's kind of off the table now because Turner seems to be firmly in that role so 
Bembry is an interesting spot we talk about in the future. But you know, again, overall, I don't love the you know the one for one nature of this because I think baseball's a better player. But the fit fit wise, I do understand what the Hawks are trying to do here. And again, the, just the downside of this is not terribly high. So. I tried to outline, and frankly, this hit at a really bad time for me. Um, you know, I was kind of out and about, and um, you know, as you can hear, I'm not on my normal setup. So the timing, it's a little bit, got a little bit frazzled by the nature of this, but taking a little bit of a deeper look, I'm a little bit higher on it than I was. I recommend also listening to, sorry, reading the piece written by Jeff Siegel on Peachtree Hoops. I plan to have Jeff on in the near future. We'll talk about this and much more, but um, that's a good written uh, calculus for what's going to be happening here. And of course, he has the uh, earlybirdrights.com angle on the salary cap as well. So, you know, not too much salary cap fallout here for the Hawks, but it does pave the way potentially for another big ticket investment in someone like Dwayne Debbin or someone else if, if they were to let Debbin go. If they were to let Debbin go, they have about $14 million, million in cap space on the one roster spot left to play with. So that's a pretty good player if they want to spend that money either on Debbin or somebody else. So keep that in mind as we get going here. So overall, not a disaster necessarily. I don't love the move on, on, on its face, but you could definitely see what the value of Turner could be if this all works out, and uh, hopefully you can fix the shooting a little bit because that's the one glaring thing here. If you think the Turner is going to be making more shots, it's a lot easier to swallow this, but defensively it really works. Secondary ball handling it really works, so if you want to be positive about the deal, I totally understand that. Last thing about this before we get to a break and then the rest of the podcast is that uh, you know Kent Bazemore personally has been awesome to deal with his entire time. He, he actually put a, uh, a nice message to the city of Atlanta up on Twitter after the deal uh, came to fruition. Uh, Chris Kirshner said the same thing on his Twitter feed, um, and I, echo, I echoed that. You know, dealing with Bazemore on a daily basis has been really awesome. He's one of the uh, one of the guys that's very very easy to like, and you know I'll be the first one to say that we never know these guys personally. You know, I I can I know some of them more than others based on the interactions that we have as a media. But Bazemore, by all accounts, is an awesome guy. And every interaction I've ever had with him, he's been an awesome guy. So easy to root for Baze. Hope he, hope he does very well in Portland. And uh, we'll talk about him when we have to in the future, potentially. But for now, it's going to be Evan Turner-centric on this on this trade after the day. But I wanted to shout out Kent Bazemore for, uh, you know, again, being the longest-tenured Hawk and being a leader and a quality guy in the locker room, all that fun stuff. And I think, he's st- I think he can still play as well. If you're listening to this podcast for a long time, you will know that I am, I'm definitely high on Baze as a contributor. You know, the contract is what it is. What it is. He, he was overpaid on, on that deal, but that's not his fault and uh, he played very well at times for for Atlanta, which is a very, very solid secondary guy that we'll see how he fares in Portland. All right, that's going to be enough on the trade for now. We'll come back to that um, as the summer gets going. But before we get to the rest of the podcast, I want to take a, a second to tell you to subscribe to the show, number one. And number two, here's a word from our sponsors. All right, and we're back to talk about the rest of what transpired in the last uh, day or two. It was actually pretty busy even before the trade hit on Monday. Um, first things first, I suppose, here is that I attended the Cam Reddish intro presser on Monday morning. Nothing incredibly noteworthy, I would say, uh, in terms of the public portion of that press conference. You know, it was tr- it was televised live on Fox Sports Southeast. If you, so if you if you missed it, I recommend go back and listening to that and watching that as well as I think the Hawks live streamed it as well on their um, social media network channels. You know, both Schlenk and Pierce talked about uh, Cameron Nash's defense, which is something that I've been saying for quite some time. I'm really intrigued by his defensive potential, and uh, that's good to hear them sort of echoing. Also, there was some mentions of his playmaking, and particularly in a secondary sense from Reddish and his shooting as well. He's going he's to be wearing number, number 22, which is not a huge surprise, given that's where he was wearing in high school. But it is something, I guess... I guess somewhat noteworthy in the fact that Alex Poitras wore that number last year. Technically, the Hawks could have offered Alex Poitras a um, a qualifying offer for a two-way contract. You know, it's a two-way contract. It's not not the biggest deal in the world, but that probably doesn't speak terribly well of that, I would imagine, to give, give, give his number away that he wore this year. So, that's me reading between the lines just a little bit uh, when it comes to that. But uh, Reddish will be wearing number 22, 
And uh, again, nothing terribly uh, sort of earth-shattering or different from the previous press conference after the draft. So I will leave it there for now. There was uh, one offshoot, and actually I was not present for this interview, but Zach Hood, good friend of the program over at PeacetreeHoops.com, um, talked to Lloyd Pierce a little bit about the way that they was basically projecting the roster because Pierce was available to speak to the media on Monday morning. And uh, the uh, interesting portion that I found was actually something that Jeff Siegel wrote about on PeacetreeHoops.com as well about John Collins. Pierce flatly stated that John Collins is, quote, our four, end quote, so that the Hawks would not be playing too small. No big surprise there. It's sort of him doubling down on the fact that Collins is a starting power forward. That's not a big surprise, obviously, because that's the widely projected role for Collins. But in case there was any doubt about maybe some small ball lineup stuff, um, Collins is going to be the starting four. I think, you know, at times he'll be used at the five. No, no question about that. This, this season he was used at the five a little bit last year. I think it was like 12% of the uh, lineups on the season was basically involved Collins at the five. It would not surprise me if that, if that number grew this year based on the presence of a, of a legitimate you know, combo forward type in uh, DeAndre Hunter. At the same time, you know, Collins is the four for the foreseeable future. I, will, I, I do want to read a quote, though, that uh, Pierce gave uh, in this instance, and I'm going to read this to you now. That actually comes even more interestingly now with, with Evan Turner in the fold, and I'm reading this to you now. Quote, you, you don't need a traditional point guard to come down and get everyone in organized. Anyone can bring it. I'm trying to get John Collins to get a defensive rebound, push the ball up the floor. We've got shooters all over the place, so we don't have to get the ball to Trey to get Kevin a three. If John can grow there, great. We're working on John and enhancing that skill set as well, end quote. So obviously the lack of a traditional point guard is something that was certainly noteworthy of just a few hours later with the trade for Evan Turner, but the fact that they're going to have sort of unlock everybody and allow, allow John Collins and others to go ahead and fire away on the break is going to be intriguing to watch in the future. Um, elsewhere, the Rookie of the Year voting finally came through um, in the uh, award presentation. I was sort of ranting about this early in the day on Monday, but just how crazy it is that the season ended on April 10th and they presented the awards on June 24th. The voting, not even the, not even the season that, that, that they were being voted on, but the voting was due more than two and a half months ago, which is absolutely insane. And uh, just the way the, the NBA is doing this is not, not the greatest thing in the world. But in the end, uh, not a big surprise necessarily, but Luka Doncic finished number one, Trey on number two in Rookie of the Year voting. DeAndre Hunter, number three. The voting split was bigger than I thought it was going to be, candidly. I don't have too much more thoughts on this. We talked about this so many times that it's not worth really diving into too deeply here. But it was 98 first place, 98 first place votes for Doncic and two for Trey Young. That is too big of a split, probably. Um, I was surprised by that, and I thought that uh, this, it was definitely larger than I thought it was going to be. Also, I thought it was pretty absurd that someone left Young off of, off the ballot entirely. He only had 97 second-place votes out of the 100, so someone did not vote Young in their top three, which I think is just ridiculous. <laughs> Honestly, there's not really an argument for that in any, any, any way, shape, or form. So you know, every once in a while, you get these really weird votes, for instance. Derrick Rose got a first place most improved player vote on Monday night. Um, John Collins, by the way, finished ninth in that voting, which is about where I thought he was probably going to finish, somewhere in the top 10. Um, might have been a little bit higher than that on John as a, as a contender for most improved player, but he was in the mix at least. But just the fact that Rose, who used to, who, who's actually a former NBA MVP, would then win most improved player is kind of weird. And that just one of those things that a reminder that there's always some stray, weird voting, and uh, that, that I guess that would explain Young being left off about. That, that's pretty uh, inexplicable to me 
in a lot of ways here. But all that to say, Trey Young was awesome this season. No question about that. Um, you know, his numbers speak for themselves. I think I've been saying this re repeatedly for months now, but Young would have been a very, very deserving and clear winner of the award in many seasons, including a lot of the recent seasons. Um, you know, for instance, the, the Malcolm Brogdon year, he would have been an easy winner. Michael Carter-Williams, there's, there's lots of times when Trey Young would have been a clear rookie of the year winner, averaging 19 and 8 per game with pretty good efficiency. And, of course, his elite passing and just the usage that he carried this year for the Hawks. So an awesome rookie season for Troy. I tweeted about this as well. That, that was kind of my only thought that, you know, he was awesome this season. He um, outpaced expectations. And I think the future is quite bright for Trey Young. So we'll leave it there for that. And uh, last but not least on the news front before we get out of here on this fine Monday evening into Tuesday morning is that Chris Moore of the AJC reported that Alpha Kaba the number 60 overall pick in 2017, is not going to be playing Summer League for the Hawks this year, which isn't a huge deal necessarily, but... Kaba is a draft pick of this of this of this era. He was the third the third draft pick in the in the Travis Schlenk era, and he played summer league the last two seasons. I've been on record pretty much the entire time and saying that it's far more likely that he'll never play for the Hawks than that he actually would play for the Hawks. But he did play in Vegas for two years in a row, so uh, it's kind of noteworthy in some ways that he's not coming. There was some weird reporting from Euro Hoops back in mid June about Kaba and some like betting on basketball weirdness. So I recommend maybe uh, look at that necessarily. I don't know. I don't know the whole story on that one either, admittedly. So that's something that's always worth pointing out. But as we're talking about him, I wanted to at least point that out. No huge impact long-term. I think Kaba, again, is sort of an outsider in terms of uh, projection to join the Hawks at any point in time. But uh, just something I wanted to point out there. Also, there was a report out there that Reed Travis will be joining the Hawks Summer League roster along with Nick Ward of Michigan State. There's a couple of names that are bending around. And we'll, we'll finally get the full roster probably late in June, early in July. That's kind of where the Hawks usually announce that. But for now, the invites that we, uh, at least that have been reported, are Matt Mooney of Texas Tech, Nick Ward of Michigan State, and um, Reed Travis of Kentucky to go along with Charlie Brown, the two-way contract from St. Joseph's. And we'll talk more, much more about Summer League as we get there, and I'll be on the scene in Vegas, all that fun stuff. So, all that to say, a jam-packed podcast that was not supposed to be jam-packed on this fine Monday, but you know, big picture, the, uh, the headline event of the day was certainly the trade involving Kent Bazemore and Evan Turner. And, you know, we wish Bays the best. Evan Turner is now an interesting, uh, very interesting analytical piece for the Hawks as the backup point guard and you know, a hybrid 3-4 defender and just a lot of interesting team-building stuff to discuss in the future. So we'll have guests, and I'll talk about more of this in the future. And, of course, you know, because Summer League is going to be coming up, we'll spend a lot of time on that. But free agency is also on the way starting Sunday at, at, at 6 p.m. Eastern time. So that'll be the topic of the topic du jour until I get to Vegas will be uh, all about free agency. And then of course the long summer actually begins. I suppose the long break begins like, you know, mid July until training camp in September. And we'll, we'll spend a lot of time talking about big picture stuff and diving into, um, you know, roster scenarios and projections and mailbag questions, all this, all this kind of fun stuff to fill the time over two months before we actually get some NBA basketball back in the uh, end of September into October. So, Stay tuned for that. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, Himalaya app, uh, Overcast, Spotify, all those places. Please listen to us wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Tell your friends, and we'll be back at least one more time this week, so stay tuned for that.